Well, I saw Star Wars Episode Nine yesterday morning. I couldn't believe that baby Yoda came on a white horse with Gandalf the Grey and slaughtered Harry Potter and escaped on the Starship Enterprise. That was mind-blowing to me. So much fandom going on, I just couldn't believe it. Well, with the new end of the year and the beginning of a new year, a Star Wars movie comes out. But before uh, the galaxy far, far away entered the December season to release its movies, uh, New Year's resolutions have always happened around this time. Change is happening. I mean, think about this. In three days, well, less than three days, today, and then there's tomorrow, and then Tuesday, we'll be in the year 2020. Think about that. No more ones. This is 2020. We're in the future, people. This is the 2000s, not 2010s. They're in the 2020s. What is happening? (laughs) This is so crazy. But I'm, you know, I have a New Year's resolution. I'll share that at the end of the sermon. I'm curious to know what you know, other people's New Year's resolution is. I wonder if Pastor Rod has one. I wonder if it's like to love cats finally or something. I don't know if you'll ever like cats. But I wonder what your New Year's resolution is. Well, I haven't asked you yet. Some of you, I asked it on the Instagram and some of you responded. But I decided to do some research. And I found out I, I wanted to compare generations. I mean, I'm a millennial generation. You're Generation Z. And I was like, all right, what, how, do we differ in any way? And it turns out we do. It turns out my generation, our New Year's resolutions usually revolve around, sounds bad to say, it's around us. Wow, we're really selfish. Um, everyone is. But our generation, we want to, like, it's usually we want to eat healthier. We want to work out more. We want to be healthier. Uh, we want to have more life balance. Our, my generation, we want to travel more. We want new jobs. We want uh, to live in a new place. We want to manage our debt because we went through college and a lot of us are in massive debt and you're about to enter in college and be in the same spot we are. So congratulations. Um, go to Sadbuck. It'll help you a lot. But with your generation, this is, I, th- I thought, very interesting. Where my generation wanted to be healthy, for your generation, you wanted to be more, um, I think, mentally healthy. We want to be physically healthy, you want to be more mentally. Uh, it, the, there's a poll done, and that's how I know this information, that Generation Z, your generation, you guys want to be more happy. Uh, you want to be, do, has resolutions to be more happy, to reduce stress, to, to earn, more, earn more money, to, to be more confident, to be a better friend, to learn a new skill, to, to help others to spend more time with family and to be nicer. That's some of what your peers are saying that they want to have happen in their New Year's resolutions. But I think deep down we know these are kind of lofty goals or just fantasy because we know that most New Year's resolutions fail. And the stats back it up. Did you know that 80% of all New Year's resolutions fail by February? New Year's resolutions don't even last two months, so your goal to be happier is going to last not even two months. My goal to eat healthier is not going to last a month. I mean, the Compass Donuts are after every Sunday. I'm going to give in one day. Actually, keep me accountable. Slap it out of my hand. I give you permission. But the point is, is that we fail because we, we rely on ourselves. We, we pull to the, ourselves as a resource to, to change. Or maybe we're smart enough to reach out to some people, but again, that's not enough to help us to, to change. And I think deep down, we, we know that. We know that no, we're not strong enough to, to change. And there's always, it's always the exception, not the rule, that people actually meet their New Year's resolutions. But why, why do we know that? Because I think we know deep down that we're not tapping into to the real source of power that can actually change us, that can actually change others, that can actually change nations. And of course, I'm talking about the power of God. 
And the way that we, we tap into that is that we tap into that with prayer. We turn to him in prayer. So if we want ourselves to change, why aren't we, why, why wouldn't we pray and turn to God to help us change? If we want other people to change, if it's a family member, if it's a friend, or maybe the bully at school, if you want them to change, why not turn to the person, uh, the God, who can actually change that person? If you're, I, don't, I, I don't know where you're at, and soon in college, maybe and when you grow up, maybe you'll care about the state of the country. Maybe you already do. You care about the environment. You care about the nation. You care about the world. But how do you expect that to change if you're not even turning to the one who actually can change it? And he has changed it in the past, and he can do it again. So in every circumstance, we need to pray boldly because God is the only one who is able to meet every need. No matter how seemingly small it is to us or seemingly impossible to us, we need to turn to God in every single circumstances. And this is what James is trying to get, uh, get at us in James chapter 5. So please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. It's on page uh, 1134 if you're using one of our Bibles. But James chapter 5 is at the end of the letter. James is writing to uh, Jewish Christians. These are Christians who are of Jewish descent. He's writing to them. They're dispersed all over the world from ancient Babylon, uh, ancient Rome, all over the world. So he's, he's writing to them of how to live a Christian life. And in James, usually at the end of a letter, we usually get like, oh, greetings to so-and-so. I write this. Hey, say hello to these people. James is different. This is like packed full of wisdom. This, is called, this book is referred as the Proverbs of the New Testament, a book of wisdom uh, for the New Testament. And it, it packs a punch. And it's, it's, and it's an awesome, it's an awesome punch for us to actually listen to. But James is, is trying to cram in his last words on, on this piece of parchment. Imagine yourself t- doing that essay for English class or for history class, and you're running out of time and trying to write that last paragraph because you're, you're trying to pour out your last thoughts to make this essay sound like Shakespeare one day. People look back on this essay of yours and go, wow, this is how Matt Daly became president of the United States because he passed his APUS test. Congratulations. But so James is frantically, it seems not frantically, but he's, he's trying to pack in this last bit of knowledge and he's tr- trying to pack in is that we need to be praying. So please follow along in verse 13 in chapter 5 of James, which is 1,135 actually, excuse me. So verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain, on, and for three six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James is obviously not talking about New Year's resolutions, like one change for the year. No, he's trying to give us how we can change in our daily walk with Christ. It's more than New Year's resolutions. It's about our daily walks. And so where does James start off? He starts off with the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's when we need to always turn to God. He starts off with the bad in verse 13. Is any one of you suffering? Are you suffering? Are you suffering spiritually? Are you, are you spiritually drained right now? Are you physically drained? 
Are you suffering? Then pray to God. Are you, are you cheerful? Are you in a hot, you just celebrated Christmas. You got everything that you wanted. You got your AirPods. You got the, the, I don't know what you guys want anymore. I'm sorry. But like, I know I want, I'm like, I want this and that. But whatever you got, did you get everything in your Christmas list? Did you get like straight A's last semester? You don't even have to go to school next semester because you're, you're, you're going to graduate, no problem. Are you on a hot streak, hot streak right now? Then praise God. In every situation that we need to be turning to him, and that's what James is saying, and we need to turn to him in prayer. In other translations, it says, then he must pray. So what James is giving, he's not really a suggestion, it's a, it's a command. It's a very like, strong suggestion command. He's saying, if you're suffering, then you must pray. Are you, in, are you cheerful? Then you must give praise. Because there is lots to be prayed for, and there's lots to give praise to, but we have to actually pay attention and to know what we need to pray for, what we need to praise. We have to pay attention to our own lives, to the lives of others in our lives, to the lives of the people in this room, to the lives of the people within this church, to know what we need to pray for, what we need to actually praise, what God is doing. We have to pay attention. And then he continues in verse 14, is it, anyone among you sick? Now, this is something, for you on paper, this might like, oh, sick, physical, physical sickness. Just to let you know, there is a raging debate going on. Is this a spiritual sickness? Is this a spiritual weakness? Or is this a physical weakness or, or physical sickness? There's a debate, and it's very um, murky. Because the same Greek word for sick is used for both all over the New Testament. And so it doesn't matter if it's a physical weakness or a spiritual weakness. What he's tell, James is telling, telling us to do is that we need to ha- tell people to come to us to say, can you pray for me? Can we both seek God? No matter if I'm spiritually weak or if I'm physically weak, we need to bring other people in to help us pray to God, who's the one, regardless if you're physically weak or you're spiritually weak, he's the only one that can raise you up. So regardless if it's a physical or spiritual weakness, and I, I, my opinion, and I asked the pastors here, it's, it's a mixture of both. It's a mixture of both that we need to make sure we're, we're, we're giving it to God. We're, we're calling the elders in. We're calling people into our lives to pray for us. So that means we actually have to let people into our lives. We have to lower our guards a little bit. And we have to be available for other people, available for, to pray to them, to reach out to them, to know how are you truly doing Sending them a text, giving them a call, saying hi to them at church or at school, or just reaching out to them saying, how, how can I be praying for you? And actually pray for them. All that to say is that it's a command for us to pray. Now we can look at this out of like, oh, I have to, uh, obligation. Like this might rub us the wrong way because we live in the United States of America. We don't like people like telling us what to do. We're rebels by nature. But instead, this is, a, this is a command to us because it's for our benefit. So point number one, True North, obediently turn to God in every circumstance. Obediently turn to God in every circumstance. The goal is for this to be a second nature, to be muscle memory. Like for example, uh, I don't know about all of you. I won't speak for all of you. I do this, for, this is something I do, unfortunately, is that what's the first, if there's any dead time, if there's any quiet time in our lives, what's the first thing that we do? If we're bored, we just, I grab my phone and I start scrolling on ESPN or Instagram or the news. It's a natural habit. But how about a good habit? Okay, raise your hand if you know where your toothbrush is right now in this moment. You know exactly where it is. Good, because it's muscle memory. 
You have built this habit of knowing exactly if you put it in, in a jar, if you lay it in, you have it in a drawer, wherever it is, you know where your toothbrush is because it's, it's a muscle. You don't think about it. You just do your morning routine. Some of you are morning people like me or you're not morning people um, like other people in this room and you, you just do it. You don't think about it. You're, just, you're brushing your teeth. But the thing is, I enjoy brushing my teeth because I know what it's doing. I'm obedient to brush my teeth because I know like, if I don't do this, I'm going to get massive cavities. I'm going to lose my teeth. My dental bill is going to be massive if I don't take care of my teeth. And just like our prayer, if we're not turning to God in prayer, we're going to have cavities in our own lives that are going to cause infections for us. That are going to, it's going to be painful to remove. So why not obediently turn to God in every circumstance? Be muscle memory. When you suffer, you turn to God right away. The first thing you do. When you, when you, you win, you, you pass the test, you get the driver's license, the first thing you do is praise God. So we have to develop this as a second nature. But the first objection I get usually is like, it's hard. I, I can't find time. How do I make time to pray? And if you, if you know me well enough, if you've ever been to my small group, I'm the first one to say, well, let's calendarize your time. And I bet if we went through minute by minute of your day, not just hour by hour, minute by minute, we're going to write things down on your calendar that we do and go, wow, that is really dumb. Am I, am I making this an excuse not to pray? But to give you encouragement, you can always, you can always pray. Like as you're, if you're seniors or if you're upperclassmen that can drive, you can drive on your way to school. Instead of turning on the music, you can pray then. If you're in the shower, instead of just sitting there thoughtless, you can pray then. And, and the first thing in the morning, instead of grabbing our phones right away, the first thing that we do, maybe you start the morning with a short prayer. Maybe that's all that you can do because you're still waking up and you're you know, five in the morning, six in the morning, for some of you, seven in the morning. That's not early anymore, by the way. You're waking up, and then the first thing, instead of grabbing your phone and checking who likes your post, instead pray first. And then the times that you might have, the, the, the times where you want to just naturally gravitate to watch YouTube or go on TikTok, just you know what? Before I go on this, I'm going to pray first. And you're making time right there. And so don't let the calendar, and I know you're busy. I'm busy. You're busy. I know you have practices. You're doing 10 sports. You're taking 50, 50 AP classes. You're working on the weekends. You're doing two jobs in the weekdays. You, you are busy, but there is time. I want to give you hope. There is time for you to stop and pray. So make sure you don't make that an excuse. But sometimes we don't turn to God because it feels robotic to us. We don't know how to pray. I'm just going to tell you this. We need to pour out our hearts to God. How to obediently turn to God in every circumstance? Pour out your heart to him. And what I mean by that is be genuine about it. Don't be robotic. Don't say the same things over and over with the same requests over and over. Pour out your heart to him in the good and the bad. When you are angry and you're, you're, you were frustrated because you're driving and the person went in your lane too soon and you want God to bring justice and have a lightning bolt strike on them and say, you know what, God? No, I am angry. I'm, I'm mad that injustice has happened. They disobeyed the laws of the road. But Lord, let me have compassion instead. God wants to hear all of your pain. He knows it, but he wants to hear all of it. My wife knows when I have a bad day, when I come home and I just, she knows I'm having a really hard time and I'm struggling with something. She knows it. I, and it doesn't have to be just with this one way. She knows it. I don't need to say it. Instead, she wants me to pour out to her my struggles because she loves me. And God loves me more than my wife does, which is a thing to be grasped, but he's demonstrated it. But he wants you to pour out your heart to him, in your, especially in your struggles, but also especially in your success. Because if we don't praise God in our success, we tend to forget him, and then we tend to take the credit. And then when bad times come, we question, why did God just stop our hot streak right now? Why, why is God letting me suffer? 
Well, it's because you weren't giving him the praise that it was due. All good things come from God. So why were you giving him the praise in the first place? I mean, praise is from passing your, getting a five out of five on your AP test, from getting 100% on your English exam, or just seeing the snow-capped mountains of the San Bernardinos in the distance going, Revival Winter Edition is almost here, and we're going to have snow. Are you just happy about that? Are you happy about a good surf day? Are you actually praising God for a good surf day? Did we praise God for no rain at Disneyland? I did. I was praying for that. I wanted that threat of rain that didn't, that didn't happen to, to drive the crowds away for 16 hours. is wonderful. It was like, it wasn't that crowded at Disneyland. That's, it's, it's an amazing thing. But again, I thank God for it because I didn't do anything. I didn't scare people away and send an email saying, hey, don't show up to Disneyland or else I'll spoil Star Wars Episode 9 to you. But no, God was the one that provided it. So we need to make sure we're giving him the praise due. In all circumstances, we need to, with prayer and supplication, give our anxieties to God, and in all circumstances, give thanks to God. But also, as in verse, 15, uh, verse 14, he's, James is telling us to call the sick to us, or sorry, the elders to us when we're weak, when we're spiritually weak, when we're physically weak. We also need to not just pour ourselves out to God, we need to pour our hearts out to one another. And this is the scariest part, right? We don't like opening up to people. We might, you might be an extrovert like myself and say hi to people, but I'm still kind of guarded of who is allowed inside my heart. And some of you who maybe are more in the introverted, you, you thrive of just kind of, you know, I can stay in my room all day. Because we're all guarded. We all put on these masks when we walk through the store. We have this armor on, like, I don't want to get hurt. People have hurt me in the past, or I just don't want to get hurt in general. But James is telling us to do, we need to have lives as Christians to make sure we're bringing people into our lives so that we can pour our hearts out to one another. It's coming together so we can pray together, so we can share our struggles and our pains, that we can bear one another's burdens to help each other uh, grow and also to help each other not sin as well. So to make sure we're actually opening ourselves within our small group, open up to your leader. Get that coffee with them. Don't ghost them anymore. Actually, we know that you read our texts that we send out to you. We know that you, we see our, our missed calls. Call us back. Text us back. Schedule a coffee with us and, and, and begin to open up because we're here to help. And even within your own small group, open up to people that you're close with or you grow close with people so that you can open up with people in your small group so that we can help one another in this life because this life will get hard. But we have to do so in obedience, but we can be a joyful obedience because we, we're confident in what prayer does. In verse, for, in verse 15, what does prayer do? A faithful prayer will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That is the power of prayer. But I do have a question for you. Is James promising that if, we have a, if you have a faithful prayer, that you'll always be physically healed or even spiritually healed in that moment? Is he promising every single time? It seems like it. I had a discussion with the leader after the last sermon. It, it, on paper, it says, if you have if a prayer of faith, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and he will be saved. Seems like it's every time, right? Do the health and wealth people have this right? That's what they would claim. Hey, it, it, it's, it's, it's your faith that's weak, that's why you're not healed. Or the prayer's faith is weak, that's why you're not healed. Is it up to us in our prayers to heal us? No, it's not. And so is James promising every single time will we be healed? No, because if you look earlier in his, his letters, in James chapter four, it's God's will be done. Now we appeal to God in boldness and confidence, but instead we also in the back of our minds remember it's his will, it's his, it's his, um, 
It's his healing that he will provide if he allows us to be healed. And so regardless if it's a physical or spiritual weakness right here, the purpose is that we're relying on God to raise us up spiritually or relying on God to raise us up physically. But also more importantly, the, the point that James is trying to make is that, we, we, again, we need to make sure we're bringing people in, not only to just pray for us, but for us to confess our sins to. Because if we have committed sins in the end of verse 15, he will be forgiven. Why? Is this the kind of like a Catholic thing? You come to a priest, you confess sins, you're forgiven? No, but in the process of him, of the elders coming to your house and praying for you, they'll examine, like, hey, why are you sick? And it's like, oh, maybe I haven't confessed this sin. And it's like, hey, you need to confess this sin to God. So they'll point you to God so that because God is the only one that can forgive us. So if we confess our sins, we're forgiven to confess our sins to God, we are forgiven. And so therefore, we need to make sure we're confessing our sins to one another, making sure that we are confessing our sins to God and to pray for one another so we may be healed. And this is something you may not think of in the moment as you're looking at this text, but there is another debate going on. Is this a um, healing? Is this a spiritual healing or is this a physical hearing, a healing? Um, oh, sorry, scratch that. This is the other debate. The other debate is sin. Does sin cause you to be sick? Yes and no. So God can send a disease or sickness to you because maybe you're, you're not confessing a sin. And the purpose is not to just punish you directly, but is also to discipline you so that you can confess to him finally. So when we're sick, there's a healthy prayer that we need to pray when we do get sick. It's like, all right, God, are you punishing me for a sin that I haven't confessed yet? Or are you, are you testing me right now? I have the flu, I have this cold, I have this fever. fever. Are you just trying to test me to, re to rely on you? Or am I just sick because I stay up late and get two hours of sleep because I'm on Fortnite every night? Maybe God is punishing you because you have a cold because you're staying up and not getting sleep. But the point I'm trying to make is that there is an element of God that does send disease, and there's biblical examples of that. And there's a king of Israel who, who, who disobeyed and God gave him a disease because of his disobedience. But also there's times where we just get sick. So we make sure there is a healthy prayer to say, all right, is there sin in my life? If there's not, then okay, maybe God's not punishing you. So that is a, is a debate. But again, the, uh, further the point is that we need to make sure we're confessing our sins to one another. We ought to have a relationship with one another that we can, we can open up to one another in a formal way of having a meeting with Pastor Ron or myself, scheduling an appointment with us because you're struggling in something so much, or informally, again, with your leader, with your, with your parents, if they're, especially if they're followers of Christ, or with your own small group. Are you vulnerable enough to let them know the dirtiest and darkest secrets and your sin in your lives? If not, you need to. And it's not that you give it to everyone. And again, it's a select people that can help. But the intention is that we turn to God in prayer because God will provide physical healing and spiritual healing, but again, with context. So point number two, true north, confidently turn to God to provide. Confidently turn to God to provide. If you know someone that's really wealthy and really generous and tells you, hey, if if you need anything, let me know. I'll give it to you, no questions asked. You would probably reach out to them. If I knew Bob Iger super closely in a sense of I can text him, I can call him, we get coffees every Tuesday, we hang out, he lets me ride on his private jet, you know, I would totally do that. If you don't know who Bob Iger is, he's the, the CEO of Disney. So he's probably one of the most powerful men in the world right now. He owns practically the world. Disney's buying everything and they're slowly conquering the world. So, But Bob Iger owns a lot. He's in charge of all Disney. 
And if I decide, you know what, I know, you know Bob and I are close, I want a favor. But you know what, Bob, I want to ride the new Star Wars ride a little early. Can you get all of Sure North to come with me? If I knew he was generous, if I knew he would do it, I would do it. But unfortunately, I don't know him that well, so I'm sorry. I can't provide that for you. As much as I want to ride on this new Star Wars movie, uh, Star Wars uh, ride in Disneyland. But if we knew someone like that, why not reach out to them? But we, the thing is, we do know someone who's more rich than Bob Iger, who's more powerful than Disney, which seems impossible to us, but it's true. We have God who can provide all things that we need. So why not reach out to him? And he says, if you ask, you will receive. If you knock, I'll open the door to you. If you ask, I will give it to you. We can turn to confidence knowing that God will provide. But again, we, 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 thankfully we're in a godly and biblical sound, uh, preaching church to where it's like, you know, there is an asterisk with this. It's not, you can't just ask for everything like riding on the land, you know, owning Disney. Like, you know, I pray, can we go on Disneyland, the ride at Disneyland early? Or can I have a sweet car, an awesome house, or the sweetest job ever? We know there's an asterisk. We know that, okay, we need God's will. So how do we pray with boldness, but, you know, making sure we understand God's will? Because sometimes we pray, we're not praying boldly like James is trying to say. We pray like, hey, God, I really want this to happen. I'd love to maybe go to this college. Hey, I, I would want this friend to be saved, but let your will be done. You know, I want this to happen, but you will will be done. We almost submit in a weird, awkward sense. That is theologically correct, but we need to pray with boldness that God will do it. But knowing explicitly and implicitly as we're thinking, as we're praying, knowing that, you know what, it's up to God for this to happen anyway. And the example that we have is is, is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, is that we, we ask boldly, but knowing the context, because Paul was asking boldly for God to heal him. He had a thorn in his side. We don't know if it was a physical thorn, if it was a disease, if it was someone hindering him. There's a debate about that. But regardless, Paul was praying that God would remove this pain out of his life with boldness. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I pleaded with the Lord because Paul knows that God would provide. If he asked, he will give. Paul knew that. But Paul understood if God said no, he knows that God is sovereignly in control anyway. And that he would be okay with that, that God has a better purpose. Paul wanted healing, but then God revealed to him, no, I will not heal you, but instead my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. So even though Paul was suffering, he wanted that pain to go away, he saw the bigger picture in that moment. He said, you know what, God? You know, I thank you for this pain. I thank you for this weakness. I prayed three times to go away, but I recognize now there's a better purpose for this pain that I just didn't see yet. So I boast in my weakness so that to show and display God's power. So we ask with boldness. So we, yes, we can ask for God for your help in that test. Not, not lazily, like, oh God, I pray that I pass this you know, test without studying. But say, hey God, I want to honor you. And, and, and so I study. I want to get, get the best grade I can. But if the best grade you get is the D, you can still celebrate. You know, God, I gave, my, gave it my best. But Lord, help me to learn the better picture to understand what you're doing. For me, it's like I, I try to make the NFL. But God said, no, I could have been angry at God and say, why? I thought I can ask all things. You give it to me. But instead, I saw his bigger purpose for me to stand here this, this morning and preach to you his word to say, you can ask for things. But remember the context of the fullness of scripture. It's his will be done. We're asking for his will to be done instead of our own. So we can ask boldly, knowing the context, but we also can ask boldly for physical needs and spiritual needs physical needs. I mean, Matthew 6, 
in the Lord's Prayer to us, for us to pray to God, it says, give us our daily bread. We're asking God for our needs. We're asking God for the food that we have. We're asking God for, hey, can you help me have a job so I can pay off my bills and I move out of my parents' house eventually? We can pray for these things, but also we're supposed to pray for spiritual things as well. If we're thirsty, if we're spiritually thirsty, you're struggling with sin, your prayer life is, is stinks, you're, you're, you're struggling to read. It's been like five days since you cracked open your Bible. You can turn to God and say, God, I am thirsty. Can you please Help me turn back to you so that I can read and understand your word. But maybe we don't ask boldly because we are spiritually just dry. Because when we do pray, it's just a list of things. And we, we try to sound you know, theologically right. We, we try to, you know, Heavenly Father, holiness in heaven. I, Lord, I'd love to be able to help me guide me where I want to go to school and whatnot. Or like, God, help me to be able to see if I should date this person or whatnot. The thing is, we, we, we do so, it's kind of like earlier, I said, we need to pour our hearts out to our God. Sometimes our prayers are so robotic. We just kind of just go through the motions. I mean, think about a person, maybe in, in, in your class right now, maybe let's say your third period. In your third period class, whatever it is, who is that person that you know their name, you kind of know them, but you really don't know them. Actually, you, you question if you know their name or not because you both haven't been able to engage in conversation. You have a list of like seven questions you ask new people. Hey, what's your name? Oh, my name's John. Nice to meet you. Hey, what school do you go to? Same one as you. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm not really aware of my surroundings. What grade are you in? Oh, I'm a sophomore. Oh, that's nice. Um, do you like sports? Not really. Do you, um, do you like movies? Nah. Do you like music? Eh, I think it's okay. Do you like cats? Yes. I don't know if we can be friends right now. But we have this list of questions because we're not trying to dive deep because we're, we're robotic towards people. And that's somehow at times we're, we're with God, we're robotic towards God. Hey, God in heaven, I know, I know you're there. You know, holy be your name, that's, that's great and all. Your, your will be done and your kingdom come on earth that is in heaven. Yeah, that's great. Um, please have daily bread and forgive my sins and help me to forgive the sins of others. And it sounds robotic. We're not pouring out our hearts. Do we care for his will to be done here? His will, do we care about the United States enough to say, God, I want your will to be done in the governments of the United States of America, all over the states. Help us to fight our sin. Holy be your name. Help me to understand your holiness even more. Help me to be able to tell others. Help others understand your holiness because we need to understand your holiness. God, help me the daily bread. Lord, I, I feel lacking in X, Y, and Z. And so we're trying to be specific in our prayers because we're pouring ourselves out to him. We're being genuine with him for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. So we pray for those. We don't do it robotically. We do it with, with our heart, opening ourselves to him and confidently turning because he's the only one that can provide those things. But as James continues in the end of 15 and 16, godly, we can turn to confidence to provide forgiveness because that's why Christ came down is to, to pay for our sins so that we can ask for forgiveness and repent and trust in him that his life paid the sins that I committed. We pray for forgiveness. And so if you, if you have committed sins, confess them so that you can be forgiven, that you can be healed. Maybe healed physically of the sin that God is sending or spiritually healed, spiritually built up. Regardless, we need to make sure we're confessing our sins to God. But also what James is saying, confess your sins to one another. Verse 16, we need to confess our sins to one another. Now, does that mean I confess to every single one of you every little sin? No. I don't. I have people in my lives that I confess my sin to, but why? Why do we confess our sins to one another? Why do we do this? We do this so we can bear one another's burdens. Life is hard. 
Some of you are experiencing that right now. Some of you have experienced that, and some of you will experience that. So we confess our sins so we can bear one another's burdens. We, we confess our sins so that we can encourage one another and build one another up. We confess our sins so that we can exhort and urge one another not to be deceived by sin. Say, hey, don't cheat on that test. I know that you really want that grade, and this grade dictates if you go to this college, but don't do it. Don't give in. We confess our sin to one another so we can forgive one another. Maybe you, wrong, maybe you wronged someone that you need to confess to and ask for their forgiveness. And for you, you need to be ready to forgive, even though you want to hold on to that, that, that grudge and that revenge. You know, I need to relinquish that and give it to you and forgive them because God has forgiven you much. We confess our sins so we can forgive one another and be reconciled to one another. To be, have a new, renewed relationships, even though we've wronged one another, we confess our sins so that we, we can bring other people back, to restore people back. They're, maybe they're in a season of where they're committing sin. And they're, no, you need to come back to our small group. You need to come back to the weekend service. You need to come back to gather together so that you can stop sinning and stop what you're doing to bring them back. But ultimately, we, we confess our sin to one another so that we can be accountable to make sure that we are confessing to God. I have people in my life that I confess my sin to and they make sure, hey, Evan, did you confess this to God? And say, yes, I did. To make sure that I am turning to the one who can only truly forgive, which is God. So we make sure we confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed, that we may be forgiven. So what though? What if I don't? Well, scripture's clear is that if you don't confess your sins to one another, you, you, you won't prosper. Maybe you might materially prosper for a while, but ultimately, eternally, you will not prosper. Maybe if you don't confess sin, you'll just have a heavy burden. In Psalm 32, it's described that the weight of the Lord will just be upon you. And you'll feel like your bones are being crushed because God is, is putting this. You need to confess this, and you're fighting it, and I don't want to. This is embarrassing. See, confessing sin is hard. It's like pulling a splinter out of our body. Sometimes, you know, the splinter hurts. No matter how minute it is, it hurts so badly. This tiny little object makes your sensories just go off. You're like, I don't want to pull it out. It might hurt. Sometimes you pull it out and it's fine. You're like, okay, that, that was, I don't know why I complained so much. But we know some of you and I've had splinters that hurt on the way out. And it hurts for someone to pull it out of ourselves. But we have to open and show the splinter in our, in our hand so that they can pull it out. That's, like, that's what's like confessing sin. It's never easy. But why? Because Satan does not want you to. He wants you to be crushed by this burden. He wants you to be, pass, to be passing on the, the guaranteed forgiveness of God. Because God says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. But Satan doesn't want that. He wants the splinter to stay there. And maybe we might risk it, you know, this splinter might dissolve into your body. And with that little splinter, maybe we'll get there and stay there, get enclosed, get an infection and get grow some gross stuff in your finger. Maybe you have to chop off your finger or your hand or your arm because you refuse to pull that splinter out. And maybe there's things in our lives that, we're, that we are refusing to allow to be pulled out. Instead, we're allowing to stay in there and, and, and festering inside our spiritually, uh, spiritual bodies and not confessing and getting out into the light. Because once we expose sin to the light of God, it dies. But sometimes the, pain, the process is painful, but it is worth it. So make sure we're asking, boldness for, for, uh, asking boldly for forgiveness, but we're confessing our sins to one another to make sure that we are confessing our sins to God. But if we can confidently turn to God to provide our physical needs and our spiritual needs, 
we can turn to God to provide even bigger things beyond our wildest imaginations. Because if you go back to verse 16, the half, halfway, apart, halfway down to verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. But why? Is it the person's righteousness? Is it, is it the person's prayer that sounds so eloquent and beautiful? Is that why? It's like, no, because the righteous person is relying on the power of God instead. And then James gives, gives, gives us an example in verse 17. Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know who Elijah is. And, you'll, and you'll, I, I thought, I'm like, I don't think I'm Elijah. Elijah rocks. This dude called fire down from heaven. Are you kidding me? He rose a boy from the dead. He rode up in a chariot of fire. He's not like me. I'm a guy who failed to get into the NFL. I'm a, I'm a guy who is up here right now. I'm no Elijah. But what James is trying to show us that is, no, we are like Elijah if you're following Christ. And he uses Elijah, and we might look at it and like, okay, that makes sense. But think about it. He's writing to a Jewish audience, so this is like a, a Jewish hero. A person, this isn't like Captain America or Spider-Man. They're fake. Batman is real. He's out there, all right? But Captain America, he's fake. It's, imagine if he's calling like George Washington or Theodore Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln, like the heroes of the United States, people that we even look up to. He's calling on the name of Elijah because this is someone that the Jews looked up to, but he's showing that this guy is not a holier-than-thou person. He had weakness. If you know 1 Kings 17 through 19 through 20, you understand that Elijah had these amazing highs but also amazing lows. After he called fire from heaven, he ran away. He slaughtered 400 priests of a false god, and yet he still ran away out of fear of one single woman. So this is a person that is like us. We might have the, the highest of highs, the greatest successes in our lives, but then we have really lows in our lives. But James is trying to show us that we can have prayers like Elijah. What prayer did he have? Was it the fire from heaven? Was it raising a little boy from the dead? Was it a chariot of fire? fire? No. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. And then he again prayed, and then the rains came. That's really weird when we think about it. The greatest example of righteous prayer is just praying for weather. Is James saying that if I pray for a great surf for a month, that I should bow my knee before God? What is James talking about? Why this example? Well, maybe it's to show us a couple things. One, uh, Elijah's motive, and two, the lag time that Elijah had to wait for God to answer his prayer. Because Elijah is trying to pray for things that were impossible, but he turned to God knowing that what is impossible is possible for God. So point number three, pray for what seems impossible to you. Pray for what seems impossible to you. What seems impossible is to change our climate of the earth. It's like, who are we mere humans? We can't do anything. For some of us who are maybe older are looking at the 2020 election going, how can this nation change? Do I really have to choose between these two candidates? Is this the best our country has? How can we change 300 million people? How can, how can we ever change? Well, this is impossible, but it's possible for God to change it. And this is what Tozer believed in. Tozer writing the, the book, The Power of Prayer, which we sell in our bookstore. I highly recommend for y'all to read it. But he talks about in his book, The Revival of 1857 and 1858 where this is massive revival, new converts to Christ. But I want to ask you a question. Who knows this on top of their head? Saturday crew, you got to shh, because I said this yesterday. How many new converts did the Great Awakening in 1857 to 1858, roughly, see in just America? 
Because the revival happened in America, Canada, Ireland, England, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, happened all over. How many new converts did America see in coming to this church, new churches, or into his church? According to Tozer, it's about one million. One million new converts. And that was in 1857. Imagine if we started praying for revival, something that seems impossible to us, to see that California would become a nation, sorry, a state after, I mean, if we want to become a nation part. (laughs) But imagine California being a state known for revival. That seems stupid and, and embarrassing to say, right? But we should pray for that. And Tozer did. You know what? And Tozer credits this, this revival of a million new converts to one event, to a, a, a missionary to New York City, him and his two buddies, three people starting a prayer meeting every single day at lunch. They started, they started a prayer meeting. And at first, it was kind of small. Was, and according to Tozer, like two people might show up a day or maybe three people a day. And it was small. And it seemed like, oh, this is pathetic. But they kept persevering. They kept praying for something impossible. And that, that it turned from once every day to an hourly thing where not just a few people would show up, but hundreds of people would show up. And not just in New York City, but in Philadelphia, in Boston, all over the East Coast, people were praying on an hourly basis for revival. And guess what? I don't know how long they prayed for. I, I, didn't, I did not do enough research. But they, God answered their prayers and saw one million new converts for Christ in the 1850s. So why not us? Why not pray like Elijah? What, what was he praying for? Why was he praying for the weather? Well, if you examine, it's mentioned in Luke chapter 4, but if we also read in uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18, it's very, you got to look for it. But what Elijah was praying for was a national calamity so that Israel would repent from its sin because his, Elijah's country, Israel at the time, was, was, was committing so much idolatry. Sounds like ours right now, right? They're committing so much idolatry. So he prayed for God to stop rain so that people would stop working and giving their gifts to false gods and instead that they would repent. And as a result, the nation professed repentance and so Elijah prayed again and he brought rain. We pray to God that God brought rain. But also, again, the second point, that, that time lag for the men in New York City to Elijah here, there's still time lag. For three and a half years, he prayed for no rain. But again, when he did pray for rain, and it's in 1 Kings 18, he prayed and he prayed for rain and he sent his servant up the hill to see, like, all right, do you see rain clouds coming? He's like, no. He did it seven times. So, so James and God is trying to show us right now that Elijah is, is an example because he fervently and earnestly prayed over and over for three and a half years and for a moment that felt like an eternity. But why? How was he able to pray like this? How was he able to pray with such confidence without doubt for three and a half years that it wouldn't rain? How did these men pray with such confidence? Because a righteous person is not relying on their prayers. They're relying on the righteousness of God. They're relying on him. And we're, not, and we're, we're, we're praying for revival. We're not praying for just winter revival or summer revival. I mean, start praying for this. Start praying for winter revival. Not everyone in this room is, is probably saved, so let's pray that everyone in this room that goes to revival winter edition gets saved. And as a result, we go to our campuses and our homes, and the other, more people get saved as, as, as a result. But the revival that we're praying for is more than just the summer and winter. It's, it's, praying, for, it's praying for revival of a magnitude that we cannot comprehend. It's a righteous person prays for revival of epic proportions. There's... 32,000 high school students. I want them all saved. So we're praying for revival of epic proportions. 
Examples like in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah was praying for his whole nation to repent. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah is praying for his whole nation to repent. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is praying for the harvest. He's praying for the whole world right there, for the harvest that's in the world to be saved. And so, yes, we need to pray in every circumstance, everything that seems small, but also we need to make our prayers bigger to your north. We need to make our prayers bigger than just us and then the immediate people around us. We do need to be praying for those, but we need to also be praying for the greater picture at large. We need to pray for revival in our, in our cities, in, in our counties, in, in our state, in our nation, and in the world. We need to be praying for those. But also, a righteous person keeps praying. Things are fun when it first starts off, but it gets hard you know, as time goes on. You might go back to school. You might feel a little refreshed from this break, even though you don't want to be there. You know, you're back. Some of you want to be there. But, but, but when March happens, March for all of you will be hard. Why? Because there is no break. It's called a long March for a reason because there's no break for you in school. There's no spring break. There's no Easter break. There's just school. And school is hard when it's, when it's just, it feels like drudgery. But when we're praying, when we're praying for revival, we have to be make sure we're doing it earnestly because that's the direction. Because as Don Whitney would say, discipline without drudgery, sorry, discipline without direction is drudgery. So if, we are, if we're not praying with direction, it's drudgery to us. If we're not praying for specific revival, it's going to be drudgery. It's going to be hard. But if we're going to be praying for direction, we can endure the hard times. We can say no to things and keep praying. As, as the men in New York City kept praying and saw a million new converts, as Elijah kept praying and no rain came and Israel professed repentance, we can pray. We can come to Saturday Saturday at student ministers and come gather together and pray together. Right now, we'll have like 20 to 40 people. Imagine if we had 200, all 200 of True North students in that room praying for revival. Just imagine that. If we kept praying and kept praying and we brought people from different churches and people, brothers and sisters from different churches, hey, you know what? Come to our church. We're going to pray together for revival together to see it happen in our lifetime so let's start now and let's keep going, but we have to do it together. And praying for revival, that's my New Year's resolution. My New Year's re resolution, I told my wife, she's going to keep me accountable and you are all going to keep me accountable. I'm going to get a reminder at seven in the morning every single day. My, prayer, my, my resolution is to pray every day for revival. Because my, my, my vision and my prayer, my direction is to see the world changed by Jesus Christ through his gospel. And my mission, our mission as Pastor Ron, myself and our leaders, our mission together is, is to disciple you, to train you to, so that you can reach out to more people and see them saved and to, and to disciple them and to train them to reach then more people. So as I'm reaching and then you're reaching and they're reaching, we're trying to reach as many people for Christ. That is my prayer. And my prayer, my direction is like, I want to see revival happen in South Orange County. I want to see it in the world, but I want to see it start in South Orange County. If you draw a line at the spectrum from east to west, and you, draw, you go south all the way down to San Clemente, there's over 30,000 high schoolers that need Jesus. If you take that same line, there's over 600,000 people that live in South County that need Jesus. If you take it to the county, there's 5 million people in Orange County that need to hear Jesus. 
I lost the count of this California population. So there's tens of millions, I think upwards of maybe 50 million people that need to hear the gospel and need to get saved. For the United States, there's over 300 million people that need to hear the gospel. And in the world, there's, I think, what, nine, now 9 billion people that need to hear the gospel. My prayer is that we would have revival to see it in our lifetime, to see it in our day, to see people come to Christ and get discipled so that they can be saved, so that we can spend eternity with them, with our Creator and our God. And that is my prayer. And that's, that's why I'm saying pray for that with me, with us. Pray for revival for all over the world so that we can rejoice together in all circumstances to bear one of those burdens in all circumstances. So let's boldly pray in every circumstance, including the things that we, we spiritually need today for what others need around us in our small group or in, our, in, the, in this room, what they need today, spiritually and physically. But also, let's make our prayers big true north. Let's change this. Let's, it's, it's, it's keep going. Let, let's, let, let this be the year that we start this prayer gathering. We started already, but that we, it continues and grows and grows so that when you're 10 years down the line like me, I'm 10 years graduate from high school, then 10 years that you would see a legacy of people in high school fervently praying for revival continuously and trusting that God will provide it, but in his timing. So let's boldly pray for that, for every need, no matter how small it seems or how big it seems. Let's start right now. Please bow your heads.